Well, hey, uh, good evening, Fathom Academy Online. Good to see you once again. Uh, we are uh, past the, the halfway mark now into uh, this Christian theology course. I'm thankful that you've stuck with us and that uh, we're, we're digging in. I hope last week, as we talked about uh, human beings, I hope that was edifying for you. And now uh, tonight, we're going to get into the nitty gritty as we uh, talk about sin, uh, the doctrine of sin. Uh, and really why we are uh, so broken. Uh, so uh, I, I'm uh, personally looking forward to this. Uh, again, if you, if you have any questions or comments, please drop those in the chat uh, over to the side of your screen, uh, and Ryan and I'll uh, figure out a way to address those. Uh, but let me just start us off with prayer, and we're going to get going. Father, we bless you once again this evening. Thank you for your great mercy uh, thank you for your great love, and thank you uh, for making uh, a way for uh, our sin to be atoned for. Lord, that as we have uh, gone astray, uh, you have provided a good shepherd in your son to call us back. So tonight, as we study the doctrine of sin, show us all the more where we have sin in our lives. Call us to repentance that we might be be more like uh, your son, Jesus, in the end. We love you, Lord. We bless you in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Hello again, folks of Fathom Academy. It's so good to be back with you here in week seven, where we are continuing our study of theological anthropology. That is a distinctly Christian account of what it means to be human. Uh, but we are continuing uh, with what we might call the shadow side of human being, and that is the doctrine of sin. Hamartiology is the technical term. It comes from one of the Greek words for sin, which I'll introduce you to later on in our talk. And so uh, part of the puzzle of understanding human being is that we have to account for why human beings are so incredible, right? Uh, why they have so much dignity and majesty. Uh, and uh, the other half of the equation, though, and this is uh, from a, a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal. That's a name some of you might know. He said the greatest puzzle is the, the majesty and the misery of humanity. Because how is it that we can do such incredible things? We can put a human being on the moon, for instance, and yet we are capable of the most terrible atrocities and monstrosities, uh, all from the same being. All right, well, that's the story we're going to tell today. So we're in the second half of theological anthropology. We're going to look at the doctrine of sin, uh, which uh, is very, very important, as I'll try to explain here in a minute. And uh, we really are not in a position to understand the good news of the gospel unless we understand the bad news first. And so that's part of what we're doing here tonight um, with the doctrine of sin, hamartiology. So um, we're going to do this in four parts, three main parts, one small part at the end. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to some of the biblical vocabulary of sin and some sort of basic technical distinctions that theologians make in talking about sin. Uh, and then in part two, we're going to look uh, concretely at how different uh, scriptures in the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek New Testament talk about sin. So we're going to look at sin in the Old Testament. We're going to look at sin in the prophets, sin in the gospels. Uh, of course, this is going to be a very whirlwind tour. We're not going to be able to give any uh, of the one stops the attention it deserves, but I hope to give you a sense of some of the diverse ways that the Bible talks about sin. Um, 
And then in part three, I'm just going to introduce you to three or four images of sin in Christian theology. And one of the things that I want to drive home tonight, if there's one big takeaway, is that the problem of sin is so grave and so destructive and so far-reaching that there's really no one image that will capture sin and what it does. Uh, And so I'm going to introduce you to a couple of Christian theologians throughout history who have talked about sin in some sort of different in helpful ways. And I say helpful uh, because, uh, well, the German theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg, which is an awesome name, Wolfhart Pannenberg. And in fact, when this is over, you should Google him or pull up your browser and Google him right now because he looks like a Bond villain. He's really incredible. Uh, But Wolfhart Pannenberg said that the recognition and the consciousness of our sin is actually the first step on our journey to liberation through Jesus. Because if we do not confront who we really are in all of our ugliness and brokenness and wickedness, uh, then we cannot be set free by the liberating truth of the gospel because we, uh, we will not repent. So this really is important for us to get. And I'll make a few uh, concluding remarks with some pastoral implications at the end. So it's not a fun subject, but it's an important one. Um, and on one level, the last thing anyone needs is a lecture about sin, right? If there's one element of Christian theology that we are already all experts in, it is sin. No one needs to tell us uh, what sin is and what it does. Um, we all know the power of sin, as Paul says in Romans 7. We can feel it lurking within us, making us do things that we don't want to do and keeping us from things that we want to do and should do. What is this power of sin? That's what we're going to try to unravel today. Um, And so uh, to that end, let's jump in. We'll start here. I've given you on the study guide here a quotation from the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, I think I've referenced him a few times already in our time together uh, these past weeks. I really like Kierkegaard. Um, And he wrote a pretty interesting book called Training in Christianity, or you could translate it Practice in Christianity. And in that book, he said, the consciousness of sin is the conditio sine qua non of Christianity. Now, I warned you way back in week one that when you study theology, you're going to see lots of Latin, and there's more of it here. Uh, Kierkegaard is uh, making a very important point here, and it's a point that we've, I think, lost in our culture. Uh, the, the consciousness of sin is the conditio sine qua non. Uh, that Latin phrase means literally the condition without which not, okay? The condition without which not. So what Kierkegaard is saying here is the consciousness of sin is the condition without which there can be no true Christianity. And what he means is uh, if you want to talk about God and you want to talk about the goodness of God, you have to talk about sin and judgment too. Because the Christian story does not make sense without the consciousness of sin. Now, this is hard because sin, as a concept, has fallen on hard times in our culture. Uh, Just a couple months ago, I was reading a feature in a major national um, publication in which the author said that she wasn't going to teach her children the word sin. There was no need for that, and it would make them feel bad about themselves because she wanted her children to understand that Human beings are actually good by nature uh, and that all this talk of sin will drag us down. And unfortunately, this thinking has even found its way into some of our churches where we're hesitant to talk about sin. And we use all kinds of euphemisms for sin. 
like brokenness or messiness or whatever. And that's fine. And those, those words have their place, but I am challenging us today to think about the word sin in all of its ugliness. I want to try to confront it together because uh, even though that author is onto something, she's only half right. Human beings were originally good, but we are no longer right. This is what the Christian faith teaches. Now, I'm going to qualify what we mean by that over the course of this talk together. It does not mean that we are as bad as we can possibly be. And it doesn't mean that everything we do is bad. And it doesn't mean that we're incapable of doing anything good. That's not what the doctrine of sin means. But it does mean that we are in a dire predicament. We are in the clutches of a power that is enslaving us from which we need to be rescued. That's what Kierkegaard means. So unless we're willing to face that, we can't tell the rest of the Christian story. Now, fortunately, the doctrine of sin is not the last chapter in the Christian story. And we'll get to that next week and in the coming weeks after that. Uh, but it is the story we need to tell for tonight. It is the conditio sine qua non. It is the condition without which there is no true faith. Right? So let's talk about it a little bit. Sin in the Bible is hard to describe. Uh, you may have heard the joke. It's not really a joke. It's more of just like a funny anecdote that the Eskimos have like dozens of words for snow. Well, uh, there's something comparable in the Bible. The biblical writers have 50 something words for sin. Did you know that? We've only got the one word in English, but the biblical writers use all kinds of different vocabulary because sin, uh, Martin Luther said, is like a hydra. He says, you cut off one head and two more grow in its place. Sin can kind of shapeshift. It can take different forms. It looks different for different people. I struggle with sins that you don't, and you struggle with sins that I don't. And that's what's so pernicious about it, is that it's hard to nail down, hard to define. So on one level, we can say that the best way to think about sin is to say sin is what it does. So one of the ways that we can define sin is describing the impact that it has. Uh, And we see this right away in the biblical story when Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebel against God. They try to usurp his place. They distrust his word. And we're told that some sort of uh, force is unleashed into the world, uh, a force that the biblical writers call sin in all their different vocabularies. And one of the things that sin does right away, and I think it's a very helpful way to think about sin, is sin tries to unravel God's good creation. We are told in the creation account in Genesis 1 that God takes the waters of chaos and he forms the void and he makes ordered life out of it. He takes chaos and he brings it to order. We might think of sin as trying to take order and returning it back to chaos. And we all know what this is like when sin gets a grip uh, on your life. It pulls things apart, disintegrates them. And we see this right away in Genesis. So in Genesis 1 and 2, and I've given you this... uh, this little table that I'm going to walk through on your study guide, I encourage you to have a look at it because I've laid out here what sin does immediately once it's unleashed into the world. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have Adam and Eve living in a fruitful garden. And then uh, as a result of sin in chapter 3, they are cast out. It's an undoing. Uh, In chapter 2, they are naked and unashamed. In chapter 3, they are naked and uh, full of shame. Sin creates new uh, emotional experiences. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Genesis uh, 1, Adam and Eve are fruitful and multiplying. In Genesis 3, there's going to be pain in childbirth, although so I've been told. I have no personal knowledge of that. Although based on the sounds that my wife was making, it seems like it's pretty painful, right? 
in chapter two, Adam and Eve are tending the garden and bringing fruit forth. In, G- in Genesis chapter three, they're working the land, but it's infested with thorns and it's no longer cooperating with them in the same way. And in chapter two, we're told, as we talked about last week, actually, that they are taken from the ground and given life. In chapter three, we're told that we will now die and return to dust. So you can see, on one level, sin is what it does. It unravels God's good creation. It tries to pull it apart, and it tries to make our lives chaotic, right? We all know what this is like. And so uh, the biblical story tells us uh, that after Adam and Eve's fateful decision, uh, this mysterious power of sin was unleashed into the world, and it created a state of estrangement. I'm going to talk about that. So human beings make it all of two chapters before they mess everything up. And the rest of the story of the Bible on one level is the story of God doing what it takes to put together what human beings had ripped apart through sin. So uh, I've taken this taxonomy uh, of threefold estrangement from a theologian named Paul Tillich, a 20th century theologian uh, who wrote a book in which he said, because of sin, we exist in a state of estrangement. What he meant is we're alienated. We're alienated from God, from each other, from our true selves. And he only designated three forms of estrangement. I added a fourth, which we'll talk about here in a minute. So number one, sin has estranged us from our true selves. We all, to varying degrees, uh, have a suspicion that we are not quite truly in touch with ourselves, emotionally, spiritually, We've all got, all got uh, varying degrees of sort of psychological dysfunction. And we're told in the Genesis story, right away, uh, Adam and Eve start experiencing shame. Shame was not supposed to be a native human emotion, right? But shame is this uh, feeling of sort of connected to guilt, although distinct, uh, that we have done something almost unbearable, Right? And we don't want to be looked at for it. And if uh, you get a chance, I encourage you to look up a piece of art by a a, a painter named Masaccio, who wrote, uh, who painted a picture of Adam and Eve being um, expelled from Edom. And you should have a look at it because he really captures the shame. Adam can't even lift his face up, right? He's covering his face. And one of the things that sin does is it drives us to shame, right? So we hide it rather than exposing it. Uh, which is paradoxical because as the Bible sees it, the way to deal with shame is to confront it in confession and in repentance, but instead we tend to stifle it because we can't bear it, right? That's the uh, psychological dimension of sin, we might say. The second is that it estranges us from others. This might, we might uh, call it social estrangement. Uh, the very first thing that Adam and Eve do when sin is unleashed into the world is turn on one another. Right away, remember, sin tries to pull apart what God has put together. It starts to corrode the very first marriage, right? And Adam and Eve uh, distrust one another. They blame one another. uh, And that sets off a spiral that really continues throughout the book of Genesis, especially to chapter 11, of sort of mutual distrust, violence. In the very first next chapter in uh, Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel, and that sets off another spiral of violence that culminates in the flood, right? Where we're told that violence covered the whole earth. So sin not only separates us from our true selves psychologically, it separates us from one another. And sin still does this. Sin is still in the business of alienating us from one another. 
Tillich did not include this one, but I added it here uh, because I think the Bible is very clear on this. The Genesis account suggests that sin estranges us from creation. If you go back and read the curse narrative of Genesis 3, you'll see that a lot of them, uh, a lot of these curses are separating humanity from the earth. Remember, Adam's name is not a name at all. It's Adam, earth creature, which suggests that a human being is supposed to have a vital and an organic relationship to the place where they live to the land, right, to the earth, and sin has totally disrupted that. And human beings were charged as image bearers of caring for and stewarding God's creation. And one of the ways that sin has terribly infected this is it has distorted our stewardship of creation to the point that we exploit it now. Right, so we're estranged from creation. And all of these, Tillich says, quite rightly, are all rooted in this primal alienation, which is alienation from God. The reason that we don't uh, function as we should psychologically, the reason that we can't get along with one another socially, the reason that uh, we're making a mess of our responsibility to the earth is because we are all separated from God. And sin ultimately does this. Uh, when Paul says that the wages of sin is death, he means the payment that people earn for serving sin is ultimate separation from God, death. So all of that is to say, according to the biblical writers, the human situation is bad. It is not going well. And it is so bad that we cannot redeem ourselves. We are in desperate need of rescue. And as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, one of the key words that the Bible uses to talk about salvation is the word rescue. And I like that word because it expresses just how dire our circumstances are. We need to be rescued. We don't need a little bit of help. We don't need a little bit of information about how to be better people. We don't need life hacks to improve our mental health. All of that is fine, but we need to be rescued. Right? That's the, the grim picture that the Bible paints. So before we go any further, I just want to introduce you to a little bit of basic vocabulary around sin. Uh, just so that if you ever come across it, you'll know what's going on. You'll sometimes see the doctrine of original sin mentioned. The doctrine of original sin, at its most basic level, just means that we are born into a state of sin. Before we make any individual decisions, whether we make any sinful decisions on our own, we are born into a state of sinfulness. Early Christian theologians like Augustine talked about this as being born into a congenital disease. Right? You are born into sin, and you didn't really have much of a choice in the matter. Uh, and it, it, it was a sin at human origins. That's why it's called original sin, all the way back to our first parents. This is distinguished from actual sin. Actual sin are concrete sinful acts that we perform. Sins that we commit do. And the thing is, we commit sins because we are sinners, right? Uh we are not sinners because we commit sins. Does that make sense? Right? So we're born into this state out of which we commit actual sins. You'll also see a distinction between individual sin and corporate sin. This is really important. Uh, and we often miss this because uh, we live in a thoroughly individualistic culture. But for the, for the writers of the Bible, your individual sins are never just your own business. When you sin, it impacts everyone that you are in relationship with whether it's your family, your spouse, your church, right? Uh, and so 
Uh, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians. I know Pastor Chris has been leading you through that. That's the thing you'll see quite a lot in Paul's letters is that when a member of the body sins, it impacts the whole body, right? It is not the case, as we often imagine, that our sins are just our own business, right? Uh, individual and corporate sin, they are always connected, right? Um, at the church where I grew up and where I minister now, we had a season of life uh, years ago now, many years ago, uh, where we had some, some pretty serious sin going on in our leadership. Nobody knew what was happening, but we could feel it in the spirit of the church. We talked about pneumatology a couple weeks ago, uh, about quenching the spirit, where Paul pleads with the Thessalonians not to quench the spirit. And one of the ways we quench the spirit is through sin. Now, we didn't know uh, exactly what was happening, but uh, the sin got exposed. It blew up. We lost a lot of families. There was a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Um, but actually, we started to recover after that because corporate sin and individual sin are always bound up. And so when, uh, when sin is confessed, it is good for the health of the individual and the health of the community. Another distinction you'll see is personal sin versus uh, structural or systematic sin, right? Personal sins are sins that we commit uh, when we lie, when we steal, uh, or we sin uh, with our bodies, sexual sin, sins that we commit with our persons. Structural or systematic sins, by this we mean uh, enormous systems that are sinful and infected by sin, but you can't point to any one individual and, and pin responsibility on them. So there's lots of examples once you start to think about them. One that our, our nation is dealing with uh, pretty, pretty significantly right now and is in lots of upheaval over is the sin of racism. That's a really good example of a systematic or structural sin. Uh, you can't point to one original racist who invented the idea of racism. Uh, like there's not like a guy named Jeff that we can blame it all on. We are all implicated in it. And yet we cannot point to any one individual who's responsible for it. And there's lots of these sins that we are implicated in. Uh, and the biblical writers, I think, want to make clear to us that there is a human being cannot live a righteous life because we are both personally sinful and we are hemmed in by these, these uh, sinful structures. So when we pay our taxes, right, our, our dollars go and we don't know where they go. They might support causes that we think are sinful. That's another good example, right? And the biblical writers want us to understand that sin has so badly infected God's good creation that structures that were meant for good have become twisted, right? And become agents of injustice. And it's likely, I think, that every institution is both uh, good and evil, compromised. Governments are like this. They're good, but they're tainted with evil. Marriages are like this, good, tainted with evil. And another uh, vocabulary I just want to briefly introduce is the idea of the noetic effects of sin. This is one of the most uh, sort of tragic and pernicious elements of sin is the noetic effects of sin. This is the idea that sin has so badly corrupted our minds that we're not even capable of recognizing when we're sinful, right? Uh, and so this is why you could go out and ask uh, people on the street and say, hey, are you a good person? Almost no one will say, no, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm a bad person uh, in need of rescuing. The reason we all basically think we're pretty good is because of sin, right? That's what's so ironic about it is it's sin blinding us to our own sin. 
So one of the things that comes through in the biblical writings is that God has to reveal our sin to us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about a new mythology, about the spirit convicting us of our sin. All right. The most basic thing I want to say about sin tonight, uh, and the thing I want you to take away if you only remember one thing, is this. Sin is a thing. Sin is a thing. Which on one level is sort of seems ludicrous. Like, what did you learn in Fathom Academy? Sin is a thing. Right. But what I mean is sin is not nothing. Sin actually exists. And the biblical writers are very clear about this. Uh, when we sin, something is created that has to be dealt with. I often get the question as a pastor and working as a theologian, why can't God just sort of forgive sin? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? We're going to tell that story next week. Well, one of the reasons is that because sin is real, it's not nothing. Something has to be dealt with it. Uh, and the Hebrew writers in particular use two words to talk about sin that are uh, words of reality. They, they describe something that really exists. Number one, uh, they often refer to sin as a burden to be born. Uh, in the Hebrew construction, nesah ewon means to bear the weight of a sin. So the biblical writers sometimes see sin as a weight that we have to bear, right? And you know what it's like. Have you ever, you, we have this expression in English, a burdened conscience. When you know you're in a state of sin that hasn't been reconciled, you can feel it weighing on you. It's real. And it's not a mistake that the biblical writers use the language of burden to talk about sin. And in fact, the biblical writers often talk about salvation as Jesus bearing sin for us. He takes it onto his body and takes it off of ours. Another uh, term that the Hebrew writers use is uh, nobah, right? Which is a word that means debt, a debt to be repaid, funds owned to a lender. Now, a debt is not real in a physical sense, but man, I'll tell you, if you have student loans, you know what I'm talking about. Debt is real. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? I feel it every time I send a whole paycheck to Wells Fargo, right? Uh, a debt is real, right? Sin is a thing. And you all know what this is like. I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. Uh, for those of you who have been, uh, who are married, uh, have you ever gotten in a huge fight with your spouse? Or you've been in any sort of uh, intimate relationship, a friendship uh, or a romantic relationship. You have a huge fight and something happens before you can resolve it and talk it out, right? Uh, and you still haven't resolved it by the time you go to sleep. Uh, I've had nights where you can feel the sin in bed with you, separating me and my wife, you know. Uh, I work as a pastor, which means that I've hosted many small groups at my house. And more than once, we've had a big fight where I did something stupid. And then people show up and it's time for small group. And Adrian and I haven't hashed it out yet. You can feel the thing in the room with you the whole night, right? That's something like what the biblical writers mean by the thingness of sin. It has to be dealt with, okay? It doesn't just go away. So how does this thing function in the Bible? Well, as I mentioned, uh, the, bio, the biblical writers use all kinds of different images to talk about sin because there's no one image that captures the destructive power of sin. So let's talk a little bit about sin in the Old Testament. I'll just give you a handful to give you an idea of the diversity of images because the biblical writers really want us to understand that the human predicament is really bad, okay? We're in really bad shape. 
Uh, we've already talked about how uh, some of the words they use, awon. It's translated in our English Bibles as iniquity, but actually it means burden, as I've already talked about. Sin becomes something that we have to bear. And a good example, actually, uh, is Cain. After he kills his brother Abel in Genesis 4, he cries out, my burden is too great for me to bear. My sin, the word is awan, my iniquity is too great for me to bear. I cannot bear it. So the writers of the Hebrew scriptures see sin as a reality that is too powerful for humans to bear. We are not equal to it. Uh, another word they use is pesah. This is willful transgression. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, this is sometimes called sin with a high hand. This is defiant disobedience. This is the same word that is used for a subject who disobeys the orders of a superior or disobeys a king. And so sometimes uh, our sin feels like a burden and sometimes we are willfully disobeying God. We all know what that's like. Another common word is hita, which means to sin or to miss the mark. It means to fall short of a standard. Uh, this is uh, closer to expressing sort of the weakness that we feel. We can't quite do the right thing even when we want to. We miss the mark. And you know what this is like too. I don't have to tell you what it feels like to miss the mark. So what's the takeaway? Well, the big thing to understand is that in the Old Testament, sin is not primarily the breaking of the rule. It is the breaking of a relationship. We often think in our context, because we're very influenced by Western legal traditions, we tend to think of sin as an infraction, something that breaks a law. And the Bible does talk about sin that way, but not usually. And uh, that's not the most common image. Uh, sin is seen as the shattering of shalom in the Old Testament, the shattering of right relationship between God and other people. Right? So to sin is not just to break a rule, it's to break a relationship. Which is uh, a theme that is taken up by the prophets of Israel. So I just want to talk a little bit about the prophetic literature uh, they see sin primarily as the violation of the covenant where God has entered into relationship with his people. He expects certain things of them and they break the covenant. And the way that they do this most often is by violating the principle of exclusive worship. So the way that Israel gets into trouble is through idolatry, which is exalting something that is not God to the position of God. And insofar as we still do the same thing, all these years later, these millennia later, we can think of sin as the violation of exclusive worship. So God demands our worship and we turn around and give it to things that are not worthy of our worship. And when we do this, we unleash the power of sin. And so according to the prophets, sin works on a vertical and a horizontal axis. And what I mean by that is sin works on a vertical axis. It relates to our relationship with God, right? So to be in a, uh, a state of sin is to have a disrupted or dysfunctional relationship to God, which in turn uh, disrupts the horizontal access, uh, access rather. And the idea here is that when our relationship to God is dysfunctional, our relationship to other people will be dysfunctional, right? So uh, for the prophets, Sin is such a problem because we worship God wrongly, which means that we turn around and we treat each other wrongly. And this is true too. You probably know this from your own experience. When your relationship with God is in a bad way, I bet you that your relationship with other people is in a bad way. They're related. And so the takeaway here for the prophets is that illicit cultic practices, in other words, wrong worship, 
worshiping the wrong thing or worshiping the true God wrongly are always connected to dysfunctional social patterns, right? So sin disrupts our relationship to God. It disrupts our relationship to other people. It's one of the big takeaways of the prophets. We'll talk a little bit about how sin functions in the Gospels. Here again, I just want to give you a taste of the different images that the Bible uses to talk about sin because there's lots. Uh, the, the most common word used in the Gospels is hamartia. That's where we get the word hamartiology, the doctrine of sin. Hamartia is the way that probably most of us think about sin, missing the mark. It's a word that means to come up short of a standard, or it was a word that was used, like, for instance, in archery, if you shot an arrow and missed the target. That was a hamartia, a missing of the mark. And the Gospels do speak uh, of sin quite often as missing the mark, uh, which suggests that there is a standard that human beings are supposed to meet as image bearers, and they can't do it. Right? And we're all familiar with, the, with what this feels like, the, the, the knowledge in our bones that we are supposed to be better than we are, and we just keep coming up short. Right? That's hamartia. But the Gospels also use other words, like uh, poneros is another one. This is a word that means wickedness or evil. This is evil that does not come from weakness. Hamartia is related to weakness, right? We want to do the right thing and we just can't, right? You know that feeling. Poneros is a more sort of cynical evil. It is knowing perfectly well what God wants, and yet you're going to do what you want. This is related to sin as defiance, right? Sin with a high hand. Uh, Jesus also uses the language of ophile quite a lot, uh, of debt that is owed, uh, especially to describe it, especially in his parables. He uses this word to, des to describe the plight of human beings as having amassed a debt that they can't ever repay, right? Uh, we take sinful actions and we dig ourselves in such a hole that we can't ever pay our way out of it. And a, a last term uh, that you see frequently in the gospels, not as frequently as the others, but from time to time is a word adikia. It's a very interesting word. It means crookedness or disorder, right? Uh, and this speaks to sin's ability to kind of twist us, right? It is true that when we sin continually without confession and repentance, sin starts to twist us, right? I'll come back to this theme when we talk about Martin Luther here in a moment, but for the time being, uh, we should recognize that sin does things to us, okay? All of the biblical writers talk about sin as having agency. Sin wants something. It wants to destroy us, wants to twist us. It's right there in Genesis 4. What does God say to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. So sin is personified here. And what comes next? And it's desire. So sin has desires. It wants things. And its desire is to master you, right? To twist you out of a, a faithful, flourishing image bearer into a sort of twisted shell, right? So what's the takeaway here? The gospels depict sin with a wide range of images, anywhere from failure to malice to indebtedness to twistedness. All that is to say one uh, singular image of sin doesn't do justice to the problems that we have. As we wrap up our biblical tour, I just want to talk a little bit about sin in Paul for a second. There's lots of places we could look, and Paul's got a lot of writing. He wrote a good percentage of the New Testament. I want to look at the, the book of Romans in particular to talk about the way that Paul thinks about sin. Uh, and in Romans 1, sin uh, appears to Paul as corruption. That's the language he uses, corruption. 
the idea that sin takes something that is good and corrupts it for its own purposes. And so most primarily for Paul, what sin has done, it, ha- it has corrupted right worship. It has, uh, it has taken the devotion that human beings ought to have given to God and twisted it and redirected it to other things that are not worthy of worship. And as a result, it has twisted the human community. So for Paul, sin, because it has misdirected our worship, has also disrupted our community and our bodies. And Paul sees the way that we use our bodies as being deeply corrupted by sin, which is why uh, Paul spends a lot of time in his letters talking about sex. Uh, Because sex is one of the ways where sin has most obviously corrupted us, right? Uh, And it's all because we exist in corrupted communities because we have corrupted worship. So that's one element of sin for Paul. But a second is that he sees sin as a cosmic power. This especially comes through in Romans 5 through 8. That sin is a power that has commandeered uh, structures of human life. Um and is enslaving us and is enslaving communities, right? Uh, We are enslaved both as, uh, as communities, right? As corporate bodies and as individuals, we are enslaved by sin for Paul and we need to be delivered from it. The New Testament scholar, Timothy Gombus puts it like this, I think really helpfully. He said, he's describing Paul's view of sin here. He says, sin is the corruption of humanity and it has to do with individual disobedience and with corporate behavioral perversions, right? Sin is also a cosmic power that has will, intention, specific aims, and strategies to achieve those aims. We shouldn't miss this. We tend to think of sin as sort of slipping up or mistakes, but brothers and sisters, sin is so much worse than that, right? Sin wants to destroy us. It wants to destroy God's good creation. And it wants to separate us from one another and separate us from our true selves and separate us from God. In other words, it wants to take what God has done in creation and drag it back into disorder. Okay, We take sin pretty lightly, but we should not because for the biblical writers, sin is the sickness that ends in death. Paul says this in Romans James says it when sin uh, is fully ripe, he says, it gives birth to death. Sin is the way that ends in death. I mentioned that what's part of what's so frustrating and destructive about sin is that it takes different shapes in different people. Uh, we all sin, but sin attacks each of us differently. Uh, and it can look different for uh, different ones of us. As I mentioned before, there are ways that I sin that you don't sin ways that you sin that I don't sin. And then there are a whole bunch of ways that we sin in the same way together. And I want to just introduce a couple of helpful images from the history of Christian theology for thinking about sin. And as we go through these, I want you to really think about which of these ways really describes the way that you are enslaved to sin. And think about uh, how it is that Jesus Christ in his life, death, resurrection, ascension has released you from bondage to sin. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about which one resonates most fully for me uh, here in a minute. Here's a good example of an early Christian uh, thinking about the nature of sin. This comes from Athanasius. 
He was writing in the fourth century uh, in his book Against the Pagans. Uh, and he's describing humanity's descent into a state of sin, which he describes as madness. Right? Listen to what he says. Not satisfied with the invention of evil, the human soul began gradually to regress to worse things. For learning of the diverse forms of pleasure and girded with the forgetfulness of things divine and taking pleasure in the passions of the body and only in things of the moment, it paid regard to opinions about them and thought that nothing existed other than visible phenomena. We'll come back to that. And that only transitory and bodily things were good. So perverted and forgetting that it was made in the image of the good God, the soul no longer perceived through its own power God the word in whose form it had been created, but turning outside itself, it regarded and pictured non-existing things. All right, that's convoluted. It's written by a Christian theologian in a very different context many years ago. But basically what Athanasius is trying to get at is one of the things that sin does is that it deceives us into thinking that the things are that are uh, the only things that matter are the things that we can see and feel in the moment, right? Which is why sin is so pleasurable for a time. It offers a transitory sense of blessedness and joy, uh, but then it turns on us because sin is a cruel mistress. And he says, not only that. When sin gets to its advanced stages, if we could use this sort of disease metaphor, one of the things it does is it makes us delusional. Sin draws us into a state of madness, right? Uh, He says that we turn away from the good God who made us in his image, who is reality itself, and we turn to that and we make a world, he says, of non-existent things. Have you ever seen someone... In sin, maybe your own self caught, mired in sin and thought to yourself, man, he or she, they're in their own world, right? They are out of touch with reality. They have no idea what their decisions are doing to themselves and to people around them. I worked as a paralegal at a law firm that does family law for many years, divorce law, child custody, pretty ugly. And I can't count the number of times uh, that people... And let me say here, uh, there are biblical reasons to get divorced. I'm not trying to make any sort of commentary on that. But I can't count the number of times that I met people in consultations who were deluded into thinking that if they just left their spouse and their family, they would finally be happy. And guess what happened? They were miserable. They were more miserable after, right? Because sin creates delusion. It makes us mad. It makes us do things that we would never do if we were thinking clearly. Augustine of Hippo, who we've met a couple times in our time together these past few weeks, also has some really interesting things to say about sin. He has a very controversial idea about sin uh, in a book called Concerning the Nature of the Good. And in this book, Augustine says that sin, uh, evil, it doesn't actually exist. It's not real. He says that evil is only privation. What he meant is evil is the misuse of the good. Now, I don't think that definition of sin is perfect. I think there's some real problems with it. We can talk about it later if there are questions about that. Um, But I do think it's a very helpful way to think about sin, if not the only uh, model we use. Because essentially, for Augustine, to sin is to misuse something good, right? When we sin sexually, sex isn't the problem. Sex is good. 
It's a gift from God. It is the misuse of sex that is the problem. And he also defines sin as misdirected desire. We sin, Augustine said, by loving the wrong things in the wrong order and in the wrong proportion. And so, conversely, a sanctified life for Augustine is something that loves the right things in the right order and in the right proportion, right? And I want you to think, just take a mental inventory of your life right now. What do you, what, where are your misdirected desires leading you? What do you want more than you want God? What do you want that's out of proportion? What do you want that is misdirected? It's a very, very helpful uh, diagnostic tool for thinking about sin. What is it that we want more than God and in the wrong order and in the wrong proportion? Question I would challenge you to think about this week. Another image comes to us from Martin Luther, who I've already quoted from his lecture on Romans. Uh, And he's got a really interesting image of sin here. Listen to what he says. Due to original sin, our nature is so curved in upon itself. The Latin here is incurvatus in se. Uh, It's curved in on itself at its deepest levels that it not only bends the best gifts of God toward itself in order to enjoy them, nay, rather, it uses God in order to obtain them. But it does not even know that in this wicked, twisted, crooked way, it seeks everything, including God, only for itself. This is a really helpful description of sin that we're getting from Luther. Sin curves us in on ourselves, right? And the idea here is that a human being is supposed to be a convex creature, right? Remember back to geometry, the difference between convex and concave? We're supposed to be convex so that the good gifts and blessing of God come in and then we redirect them out towards the world. But instead, we've become concave, right? Hoarding all of God's gifts for ourselves. And so Luther says one of the things that sin does is it twists us and it makes us smaller. It shrinks us. And so when we are mired in sin, we live a life that is turned in on itself. And so instead of being open to God and open to the world and open to the needs of our neighbor, we are using all things for ourselves, he says. And Luther says we can even use God like this, right? We can be addicted to religion or we can be obsessed with our own righteousness where we use God as a way to fuel our own sin. It's nasty stuff. It curves us in on ourselves. All right, as a final model, back to Kierkegaard here. This is from his book, The Sickness Unto Death, uh, which is actually more depressing than it sounds. It's a pretty harrowing book uh, written in the mid-19th century. And that uh, The Sickness Unto Death is essentially Kierkegaard's uh, book on the doctrine of sin. And instead of the language of sin, he uses the language of despair. But by this, he more or less means sin. And what's interesting is Kierkegaard said that despair can take two forms. One we're familiar with. He calls it willing despairingly to be oneself. He calls this sin defiance, right? In more traditional Christian language, we would call this the sin of pride. Willing despairingly to be oneself. What he means is this is sin that says, I will be myself and I will do what I want no matter what. 
I do not care about the cost. I will be myself. And by the way, this is the creed of our culture. You do you is an expression of what Kierkegaard means here by defiance. No one will tell me what I will be. I will determine who I will be. This is the sin of pride. But what's interesting is Kierkegaard says, that's one way to sin, but on the other side of the spectrum, there's another way of sinning that is just as dangerous. He calls this the sin of weakness, and he defines it by not willing to be oneself. Now, it's interesting because we typically think of sin as making too much of ourselves, and we all understand that. And it is true that sin tempts us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. But Kierkegaard says, have you ever recognized, though, that you can also sin by making too little of yourself? By refusing to uh, engage the challenge of your life? Right? He illustrates it like this. He says, imagine a big house. Someone has built you a magnificent house. It's three stories, and on the top, there's a rooftop terrace with tremendous, magnificent views but you're too afraid to come out of the basement because you're going to get the house dirty. That's what Kierkegaard says. He says, that's how most people live their lives. They are too afraid of living the challenge of being an image bearer that they do not even try. And folks, I think that this is just as common in our culture as defiance, right? We, you know, so often we fail to even try to live a human life. And when I think about all these models of sin, sadly, I identify with all of them, but it's perhaps the sin of weakness that hits me most closely. Uh, I am so afraid. And I miss out on so many things that God is doing, wants to do, could do, because I'm afraid. I'm not up to the challenge. So I want you to think this week that you can sin by making too much of yourself, but you can also sin by making too little of yourself because you are made in the image of God, which means that you are supposed to be great. But we settle for something less than life all the time. And Jesus, what does he say in John 10? I have come to give you life and I've come to give you life abundant. So one of the ways we sin is by settling for merely existing when we could have life abundant. All right. A lot. Depressing, I recognize. Uh, But let's tie it all together. I'll make a few concluding remarks, set us up for next week. Big takeaways. Number one, sin is a reality. Sin has thingness about it. It's real. It has to be dealt with. It's an actual problem. Okay, Sin is a reality. It is real. This is something that the New Testament writers especially are uncompromising on. We are enslaved to it, right? And it has desires and intentions to master us. Number two, sin is serious. Uh, This is another thing our culture has lost almost completely. Uh, And in fact, uh, about half the time you hear the word sin used, it's used in reference to dessert, right? We describe cakes as sinful, right? Or we we use moral language to talk about cheating on a diet, right? I was bad. I cheated on my diet. Uh, The biblical writers see sin as much more serious than that. They see sin as a terminal illness. The prognosis is death, all right, unless there is radical, radical treatment. So this should give us pause as we think about the decisions we make each day, as we fight uh, the, the good fight, as Paul puts it, in the power of the Spirit. When we think about a decision, does this lead to death? Because the biblical writers see our sinful decisions as leading to death. And here... 
One final point about the doctrine of total depravity, especially if you run in Calvinist circles, you will see this language, total depravity, used a lot. It's the T in tulip, if you're familiar with tulip. I want to make a qualification about what this doctrine means. This doctrine is sometimes misinterpreted to mean that human beings are utterly wretched garbage that are incapable of uh, anything good and that are unworthy of God's attention. And sometimes you might even hear songs like this. I know I've heard sermons like this. Humans are just utterly wretched, totally useless, uh, as bad as they could possibly be. That is not what the doctrine of total depravity means. And it's not what it meant when it was framed as a doctrine in in the Reformation period. What it means is we are totally depraved in the sense that every dimension of our life is tainted by sin. Our physical life, our spiritual life, our psychological life, our relationship to other people, So when we say we're totally depraved, we mean that all of that has been impacted by sin, not that we are as wretched as we can possibly be, right? Because as sinful though we are, human beings, and even those who are outside of Jesus Christ, are capable of doing good things, capable of acts of charity and grace, uh, and of magnificent works of beauty. But all that is to say, when we talk about being totally depraved, what we mean is that human beings are in a predicament from which we cannot extricate ourselves. We are stuck and in need of rescue. So I hope I haven't bummed you out too bad this week talking so much about sin, but I do want us to think about it because unless we confront our sin and repent, there is no way to liberation. And I will end on a hopeful note because sin is not the last chapter of the biblical story. And next week, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the atonement, which is what God has done in Jesus Christ to break the power of sin, to set us free from it, and restore us to life. So if you're bummed out this week, I get it, and uh, it, it can be good to dwell on our sin and to repent of it. But come back next week where we talk about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll look forward to seeing you then. <laughs>